Welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming, and I'm here with my friend, colleague, and co-host who is deep in the midst of some research in the library, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What's up, Tim? I have a big project going, Brian, <laughs> so I've, tied, I, I've decided to take a couple minutes out of my day to, to talk on this podcast, but otherwise I'm going to be buried in the books for the next I, 24 hours. I am honored. I'm honored that you're taking time away from your academic pursuits to come talk uh, about all of the crazy things going on with me in the world of international trade. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, it is, we're recording this uh, on Monday, June 22nd. Uh, thanks to everybody, especially. This is, by the way, a mini landmark for Embargo. This is our 10th episode, uh, so our 10th proper episode. So um, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of fun in and of itself. But um, thank you for joining us, as always. Thank you for everybody who reached out after the, the last episode um about our both our prelude and sort of the main substance of the of the conversation that we had um we are uh, so before we get into it today let me just um give the normal caveats um we're not here giving legal advice we're not uh, relying on or disclosing any confidential information um and uh a few notes before we get started also just about the schedule so um, we're recording this on a Monday as opposed to our normal Friday, and so this will be up likely on Wednesday, the 24th. Um, we're on a slightly altered schedule because uh, we and our law firm, like many other uh, firms and businesses in the U.S., this uh, Friday we're observing the Juneteenth holiday, uh, long overdue. So uh, we pushed our recording to uh, today, to Monday. And next, uh, two weeks from now, is the 4th of July weekend. So I think we're also going to be on a Monday recording schedule that week as well. Uh, so you'll find us now uh, the next couple of weeks probably in, uh, on Wednesday instead of Tuesday. Um, and then uh, just a, a quick, uh, I guess, let me, let me just throw it to Tim real quick before I kind of do a quick rundown of what we're going to cover today. Any, any other sort of thoughts, comments, questions, considerations yeah. before we jump into it? I'm hoping we're going to get a medallion for our, for our 10th episode. I think that, that like is our, very like, appropriate. Like our favorite exercise platform gives us medallions every exactly. time. Exactly. This is yeah. the, the 10 rides, 10 rides, uh, uh, bonus feature milestone. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. And maybe they'll send us a free t-shirt as well. Um, so just to get into the, uh, again, to give you a little roadmap in the event that you want to jump to specific segments. Um, so we're going to start with something that certainly is chewing up a lot of attention here in Washington right now, which is the imminent release now that uh, a court has cleared it of John Bolton's new book, uh, The Room Where It Happened, and, and actually some pretty significant impacts that some of the uh, revelations in there could have on um, international trade and some of the things that we've talked about extensively in the past. So we're going to start with that, uh, specifically relating to China, not surprisingly. Then we're going to pivot to Huawei and talk, um, we're going to talk about Huawei in the first segment, but then we're going to talk more specifically about a new development relating to Huawei and their uh, role in standard settings bodies um, around the world. Then we're going to go to um, a, recent, a recent dismissal in SDNY that has caught our attention, and it's a case we talked about before for an Iranian sanctions um, related case that we talked about a few months ago. And then we're going to wrap up the main portion of the show. We're talking about the new executive order 
um, aimed at the International Criminal Court. And then in the lightning round, we're going to hit Venezuela, which seems to be in the lightning round every week, um, Syria, and then a quick note about uh, another enforcement action relating to Iran that we talked about a couple weeks ago. So I think that's sort of the, the uh, roadmap for today. And before we get started, Tim, anything you want to add? No, actually, in your intro, it just struck me the proximity of uh, the 4th of July and Juneteenth, since they are both holidays that reflect milestones on the way to United States freedom. The first one where we put it into words and the second one where it actually started to happen. So um, kind of interesting, but uh, happy Juneteenth and happy 4th of July coming up. Exactly. Uh, so with that, let's uh, let's get into it. So, so like I said, first topic number one today, um, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, former National Security Advisor John Bolton has written a book, uh, The Room Where It Happened. And uh, in this book, there are many details uh, of his time serving in the Trump administration, and in particular, certain things that the president himself is uh, alleged to have done or said with respect to world leaders and various other um, sort of aspects of, of uh, Bolton's interactions with him that are that are now being divulged. And obviously many, uh, this kind of really caught fire last week when an excerpt from the book showed up in the Wall Street Journal on, I believe it was Wednesday. And then the Justice Department filed a suit to try to keep the book from coming out, which uh, that effort was um, denied over the weekend. And now I think the pub, the I believe the wide publication date of the book is tomorrow, the 23rd of June. So this is going to be available everywhere. And I should add by saying I should start by saying we are in no way taking sort of any stance whatsoever about the veracity of any of these allegations. I think that's kind of beside the point. I think the main point is that what we now know is going to be in the book and what's already been reported is a couple of a couple of big um, allegations or revelations relating to some critical. Um, international trade issues that are still very much live right now and are potentially going to have some bearing on these things going forward. So two, two things principally I think that we're going to focus on. Number one, just last week, the White House signed the new um, sanctions bill, the, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act that we discussed previously, and we said that that looked like it was all but certain to be signed, and it has now been signed. That happened to come on the same day that the excerpt from uh, Bolton's book came out. And in the book, he asserts that um, during a bilateral meeting between uh, President Trump and President Xi uh, last year, uh, President Xi was explaining their Uyghur policy, and in particular the camps, and which are, of course, the basis for the uh, sanctions bill that has just been signed into law. Uh, and the potential forthcoming sanctions that we could see against Chinese officials and others relating to human rights violations against the Uyghurs. And President Trump allegedly said, that's, I, that's exactly what you should be doing. I, I support what you're doing. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what's in the book, essentially, is that Trump essentially gave Xi a, a thumbs up for that policy and, and now uh, has signed into law a, a, an act that can punish the Chinese for that very thing. And then the second um, piece of this is relating to a couple of different law enforcement matters and ongoing investigations and, uh, and prosecutions that are ongoing, the most high profile of which and the most sort of front and center is Huawei and the criminal case against Huawei. And this, of course, is something we've talked about a lot. And it's not just the 
um, it is not just the case against um, the CFO uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou in Canada that we've talked about just recently, but it's the broader case against Huawei. And apparently what's claimed in the book is that President Trump made clear to President Xi that he would be willing to uh, make the case go away essentially as a bargaining chip in the trade negotiations with China. Um, it also came out apparently that similar at least sentiments or promises may have been made with respect to ZTE and the prior enforcement action and the, the commerce penalties against ZTE. But, but Huawei, I think, is the sort of front and center here as the, 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 uh, the most significant of these uh, at least pro, you know, professed con concessions that Trump was ready to make uh, in the course of the trade negotiations. So again, putting aside whether any of this is true for the moment, it is now out. It's in the public domain. China obviously has seen all of this and is not pleased, as you can imagine, by any of this. Uh, and nor are many other people in many other corners of the policy and uh, global political community. So let me toss it to you, Tim. So what do we, uh, sort of number one question, I guess, let's start with the, the Uyghur Sanctions Act first, I guess. What do we, do we think this is gonna sort of materially inhibit the U.S.'s ability or even desire to try to uh, implement or enforce this act now that um, this is sort of out there? Or do we think that the administration will just kind of ignore this and just kind of as noise or lies or it's already been, you know, claimed to be just, you know, bloody lies on the part of Bolton, who's being vindictive and uh, for being having been dismissed? What do we what do we think the outcome or the result of this is going to be just let's start on the Uyghur bill first. Well, starting with the Uyghur bill, um, let's let's begin from the proposition that the Trump administration has not appeared to have made uh, human rights enforcement around the world a top priority. And then you add to that uh, President Trump's purported statements uh, reflected in uh, Ambassador Bolton, Bolton's book about uh, essentially condoning uh, the, the camps that President Xi was going to be building for the Uyghurs um, as part of the, a back and forth related to the trade deal, at least that's the allegation from Ambassador Bolton. In that context, I think there's one of two ways this could go. It certainly seems like the natural reflexive action of President Trump and the Trump administration would be to one, it, you know, I, there was some discussion of whether he'd sign the bill at all. Now he did sign the bill, so the bill is in law, but it, it actually gives the Treasury great discretion in terms of the imposition of sanctions. And um, you know, you would think it based on their stated policy on these issues and the alleged policy from the the book that they're probably not going to do very much. Now, on the other hand, if now that these allegations are out there and there does not seem to be any love lost between President Trump and Ambassador Bolton, you could see a scenario in which the administration gets really tough on the Chinese government based on their treatment of the Uyghurs just to show Ambassador Bolton that, that he's wrong and that this administration really does care about this issue. So I, I, it's, it's hard to say if I had to guess, we're not gonna see much sanctions activity um, from, the, from the Uyghur bill, but, but uh, you know, I guess only time will tell, but that does not seem to be the sort of sanction that this, this administration has imposed with vigor over the over the past four years. Yeah, so a couple of related points. So remember when we talked about this on a prior episode, 
there, there has to be a report to Congress that proceeds and names essentially officials and other parties that are going to be subject to the sanctions. So as we've seen in the recent past, those reports, which are essentially on the, you know, on the White House or on the executive branch to deliver in a timely fashion are not always delivered in a timely fashion. And so given everything that's going on right now, and given that that report would be due, I think, right around the election time, who knows if that's going to come on time or if it's ever going to come at this point. So that's one point. Another point, another interesting point that I wanted to get your thoughts on are, if you saw the statement that the White House released at the time of the signing, there was this caveat language about um, being able to um, being able to remove sanctions. Um, and the and the White House essentially said, uh, Section 6G of the Act purports to limit my discretion to terminate sanctions under the Act. And in that that section is a is a reporting requirement to a number of committees in Congress. And it struck me that, like we saw with Rusal and the related actions there, where that kind of created a little bit of a kerfuffle and maybe a, an unwanted obstacle, perhaps at the at the eleventh hour, that this is a signal that we're not going to go through that. We're not going to jump over that hurdle if we decide to do this, and you'll have to, you know, kind of fight us about this, maybe in court, if you want us to, if you want to claim that this is uh, required. So that that I thought was a little interesting footnote here. Agree. I saw that and thought, does this mean they're going to take the same position now with CATSA? Because CATSA has a similar reporting yeah. requirement and a clearance requirement that we saw with respect to Rusal and we saw with respect to some of the other Deripaska companies that were re removed from the list. And that, well, while the delisting process uh, and the, the divestment process eventually was not disapproved by Congress, it was a very close vote. And uh, the administration, I think, probably uh, was very anxious before that vote and certainly is not anxious to ever go through that again. And so this may may be a new posture of the administration suggesting that uh, they're not going to go through this to lift sanctions anymore and that tying their hands with respect to the lifting of sanctions, uh, they, they believe to be unconstitutional. Now, it's not just CATSA, right? I mean, it's the Helms-Burton uh, yeah. imposes the same sort of restrictions on Cuba. And so it, assuming that they're taking the broad view of this uh, executive power to remove sanctions without the, without being troubled by any congressional enactments. It, it's a potentially a pretty broad theory. Yeah. So it'll be, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we'll have to just kind of wait and see how that plays out. Um, but wanted to just kind of flag that at this point. And, th and then, so then to pivot to the second point, to the, the criminal case against Huawei as a trade chip in the, um, in the, in the sort of uh, negotiations with China over the trade deal. I mean, this is, I, I think, so that theory or that understanding of what the Huawei criminal case is, is not new necessarily. I mean, I think you and I were probably both asked that question by clients and reporters the very day that, that, that Meng Wanzhou was arrested. So it's not that this is sort of a novel theory or thought here. But, but the more interesting question I think is because this is, these are still live cases and because in particular, the extradition proceedings in Canada, as we've talked about, are gonna hinge somewhat on whether or not there's, you know, Canadian courts are going to accept the fact that this is a straightforward criminal prosecution that the United States wants to, is conducting and is not politically motivated and is not sort of politically biased and is not 
you know, all of the things that Meng Wanzhou's lawyers are, are, have already argued and are going to continue to argue, how much more difficult does this now potentially make that argument for the U.S. to be able to actually prevail in the extradition now that this is potentially going to be, it's out again, sort of take it for what it is, but it will certainly be referenced and, and, and sort of tr they will try to introduce this as evidence to suggest that the U.S. is not on, on the sort of straight and narrow here with this prosecution. Yeah, it's just not helpful in terms of uh, international perceptions. I mean, as we know, there is already a perception in China that the ZTE prosecution, the Huawei prosecution, all of the many acts taken against Huawei are politically motivated acts that are really part of a trade war between the United States and China, and they really have nothing to do with criminal enforcement or civil enforcement. That perception was already there. And I think there, you know, there are certainly counters to that, and we've made them on the podcast. We have uh, made them in, in, you know, in more uh, confidential places with clients. But, but the the fact of the matter is, is that with the ZTE, the, the ZTE prosecution, which the timing suggests that this wasn't even a, a, a Trump motivated prosecution to begin with, but when you have the president in the midst of a standoff about the toughening of sanctions against CTE with respect to some conduct that took place after the settlement, and the president is tweeting about saving Chinese jobs and lifting the same sanctions that his own commerce secretary are putting on, that starts to create the impression that there are that there is more going on here than than simply criminal enforcement. And in the same way, um, you know, when you fast forward to Huawei, the, the, the allegations of political motivation were there from the beginning, and President Trump has made statements throughout that suggest that certainly he has some, some interest in that prosecution that is not related to carefully parsing the indictment. And so, so I think that, that, that those statements were already out there. The only thing that I think that this adds to the picture, and it, it will come up in the extradition proceedings, I, I, I'm you know, 99.9% .9 sure of that, because as, as you just pointed out, Brian, in every extradition proceeding, one of the questions in front of the court that's being asked to extradite is, are we sending this person using our legal system off to a justice system that will give them a fair trial that is based on the evidence and based on the rule of law? And um, this statement, I think, if you believe it, uh, is almost exhibit A in that this is that 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 uh, Mrs. Meng is essentially just a pawn in the the U.S. Chinese trade war, and that if if President Trump could get enough value from the Chinese government on uh, in terms of trade concessions, he would hand her back over in a second, as he would dismiss the Huawei indictment. Again, th those statements may not be true, but if if those statements were actually made. Uh, it's pretty good evidence that there's more going on here than simply a, a criminal prosecution against a Huawei and Mrs. Meng, and the Canadian courts will have to consider that. And then when you add to that, that, that the, the Chinese appear to have seized a number of Canadians at the time of Mrs. Meng's arrest in order to engage in a, a, a political negotiation with the Canadian government about trading essentially the, the Chinese pris the, the, the Chinese Canadian prisoners for Mrs. Meng, um, it becomes a lot harder for the Canadian government to, risk, to, to resist that sort of thing, just because it, as an internal Canadian political matter, um, you know, the, 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 the Canadian government is having a hard time explaining why it is pursuing these charges against Mrs. Meng at the same time that they're not, you know, 
giving her up to get the Canadians out. And so now that just makes it, I think, twice as hard for the Canadian government to resist that sort of pressure because it sure looks like the the American president is willing to do that. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, one, I'll throw in one final very quick anecdote and then we'll pivot to issue number two. But Tim and I happened to be in China on business at the time that the tweets about ZTE came out two years, this is almost exactly two years ago. And some, not us, to be clear, not us, um, made the joke that it seemed to be the make China great again effort that was uh, that was kicking off. And here, here we are now, maybe maybe that was truer, truer than we knew at the time, but in any event, um, we'll leave that behind for now and let's, um, Let's turn to another Huawei issue, which is Huawei and 5G and standard setting. I'll turn it over to Tim. At some point, we are going to do a podcast that does not involve Huawei, but it's not going to be today because we we're already only a few minutes in and we've already uh, mentioned, discussed a, one Huawei wrinkle quite a bit. And so let's turn to another one. So uh, after Huawei was added to the entity list, uh, one question came up relatively quickly. I think they were added to the entity list in May of 2019. And by August of 2019, the Commerce Department had written an advisory opinion on the question of whether or not U.S. Uh, persons at U.S. companies could continue to sit on standards boards with uh, representatives of Huawei. Um, and the, there was a, an, a there was a, an advisory opinion from the Commerce Department that seemed to suggest that the answer was going to often be no. And the reason being that if there was a discussion of technology, that any controlled technology and even controlled meaning EAR99, at least as I understand it, and, and certainly controlled for anti-terrorism reasons, could not be given to Huawei because they were on the entity list. And so you couldn't give any sort of technology to them at all if it was U.S. origin. So U.S. Uh, representatives representatives of U.S. companies who were sitting on these standards boards worried that if they d discussed any U.S. technology, that it would be a transfer of technology to Huawei, which being on the entity list uh, required a license. And, and Commerce confirmed that in, uh, in its uh, advisory of opinion of August 2019. So what happened? Well, I think the hope from Commerce Department officials when they wrote that opinion would be that that uh, these standards boards that were setting the 5G standards would start to kick Huawei off so that the U.S. Uh, representatives could stay on these commissions. But what happened instead was that the U.S. representative said, well, we can't show up uh, if Huawei is going to be there because we're worried about technology transfers. And so the standards commissions continued to meet with Huawei and the U.S. representatives were getting, were getting left off these commissions and, and meaning that the standard setting bodies uh, were, were moving on without U.S. participation. And that was a really bad development. And so um, just last week, the Commerce Department is it just last week? I think it was very recently. It was just so, last week. Yeah, yeah. it's just last week. So the Commerce Department, uh, it, the reason I was a little puzzled by that is that the, this has been kind of rumored, rumored to be happening for quite a while. But just last week, the Commerce Department announced that they are withdrawing that advisory opinion. And they have now, they're now going to amend Huawei's placement on the entity list. And so now that they have that crazy little footnote in the entity list, they've decided to add another um, another kind of uh, 
asterisk to the entity list in which Huawei's entity list standing will, will mean that you need to get a license to export all goods to Huawei, except you can provide EAR99 and anti-terrorism controlled and technology only controlled for anti-terrorism reasons to Huawei if you were doing so while you're in a standards uh, board. So they basically have now carved out their entity listing to reflect precisely this issue. And it's kind of a, a general license to do that, but really it's not. They've, they have defined out of the sort of things that you can't send to Huawei without a license, this sort of technology transfer on the standard setting board. So it's another kind of um, twist to the way that Huawei's entity listing has been taking place. I mean, every time there's a new issue, they have to come out with something new to kind of carve it out or fix it because there's all these unintended consequences that it really happened from the day they put Huawei on the entity list. Yeah, I think to Tim's, I, mean, I only have a few kind of quick comments on this, but so to Tim's point, when that guidance came out last year, per, perhaps that was the intent was that Huawei might get kicked off these standards, these voluntary standard setting bodies that didn't happen. So, and, and then you had a number of US players that were just sort of fearful of having any participation in them. So I think Commerce saw the writing on the wall and said, well, we, we don't want to just give up our seat at the table. We need to do something here. And so that's why this rule has come about so that um, the U.S. participants can stay involved in, in these critical bodies that are going to be necessary, especially with regard to 5G and other technologies going forward. So um, it is a little curious why it took so long, perhaps, to get this sorted out, because from everything we were hearing, there was a lot of, despite, almost as soon as that guidance came out, it was pretty clear that that wasn't going to clear anything up. And if anything, it was just going to keep everybody away. And so it seemed... And, and again, I think it seemed also clear that Huawei wasn't getting kicked out of some of these international standard setting bodies. So um, it is a little odd that it took this long. I mean, there are obviously many other things going on with respect to Huawei, but that it is quite strange. And and of course, this is cast as a as a victory for U.S. industry and U.S. you know sort of uh, technological leadership because we again sort of preserve our seat at the table or head of the table, presumably, but. Um, you know, this did take quite a while to get done. The other, the other point I'll make is, um, as Tim said, this is now sort of amending the entity listing for this very narrow purpose. And it really, all it really does is sort of put things back to where it was before Huawei was on the entity list is that these, this type of technology, AR99 and AT can be shared without a license, but everything else is still subject to uh, the same restrictions on the entity list. So I, I also wonder, perhaps how and whether or not there might be some circumstances where there's more sensitive technology that's going to be discussed in some of these standard setting bodies where there are still going to be U.S. players that are going to be afraid or um, a little, you know, skittish to try to be involved because their own assessments might be that, that, that you're going to require the release or sharing of technology that goes beyond the again, the very kind of narrow parameters here of this very low level controlled technology. So it'll, I think it remains to be seen how that'll, how that'll play out. It may also be the case that now that this has happened, that there's would be possibility to get licenses and other things. If, if, if again, for this narrow purpose, there was some sliver of technology that would need to be released or shared in these settings. But again, we'll sort of see how that plays out going forward. It, uh, I'm sure that if, um, I'm sure that if uh, the U.S. stakeholders here feel that this isn't going far enough, that there will be 
uh, further follow-up. And there is a two-month comment period on this interim final rule. So in August, when the rule goes final, I'm sure we will know more about uh, what kind of feedback comes in on this. So um, I think that's I think that's probably all we have on that for now. Uh, we may very well be coming back to that again in the future. Yeah, it's so, interesting how they they took away their own seat at the table and gave it back. And I, I do agree that there might be kind of new issues at the margins with respect to more control technology. But, but until this was changed back, there was really no way to go to this table because it's impossible to talk about these sorts of issues without at least sharing EAR99 technology. So it, I think that they have they have gotten gotten us back to the table now, and there may be you know some discussions as whether we have to briefly excuse ourselves, but I don't think they the U.S. <laughs> people are going to be giving up their seats the way that they pretty much had to until the the rule was changed. Right. Um, so with that, let's conclude that portion and conclude uh, the, the China portion of our program, which is obviously always the, <laughs> seems to always be the largest portion. <laughs> and we're going to pivot now to a more, to, to Iran and Venezuela and to a more uh, traditional enforcement uh, action setting, which is the prosecution of um, Ali Sadr, uh, in uh, SDNY, Ali Sadr Hashemi Najad, he goes by Sadr, Mr. Sadr. Um, and so we talked about this case a few months ago because there was a, I believe this was in episode four, if I'm not mistaken, the, the, uh, the guilty verdict came down. Um, Mr. Sadr was found guilty of a few different offenses, including um, bank fraud and uh, largely relating to a kind of lo uh, what was alleged to be a, a big sort of sanctions evasion scheme that he was involved in relating to an Iranian uh, company and a, a construction project in Venezuela and the desire to access uh, the U.S. financial system to be, uh, to be able to carry out that project. So I'm not going to recite the facts of the case because we've done that previously and it's also quite convoluted, but I think for anybody who didn't hear the last time, all that one needs to know is that there was a, the, the scheme as alleged was essentially this large, was, was what I've just sort of described is, and there were again, bank fraud, money laundering, um, and sanctions violations that are kind of at the heart of the scheme. So um, lo and behold, there was a, there was a number of, um, the defense filed a motion for acquittal and new trial, which is routine at the end of a jury trial right, like this, but that prompted um, a number of uh, revelations and additional briefing. Uh, the government had to turn over some documents that it hadn't turned over previously. Uh, and at the very final deadline, uh, which was now a little over two weeks ago when the government had to sort of respond to the substantive motion, the government came forward and basically said uh, in a court filing that they wanted to dismiss the case. Um, and they did not, uh, in the form of this dismissal is for an order, a null pros order, um, for those who are familiar with the sort of criminal procedural, this is not, um, not necessarily the same as a dismissal with prejudice. So there was some, there has been some back and forth since that, since this time on that. But, but I think the the fascinating issue is, first of all, this was a pretty big high profile case uh, in SDNY. Um, Justice Department obviously spent a lot of time and effort in this case trying to bring Mr. Sauter to trial. And, um, and uh, there was a big press release issued after the, um, after the, the verdict was returned. 
and now just a couple of months later for the government to, to do a 180 and to essentially say that they're ready to drop the case is pretty stunning. And so we still don't know precisely why, um, but I think we're going to know pretty soon. So there's a couple of, a couple of things that I'll mention and then I'll, I'll turn it to Tim. So the government's motion would, uh, that was filed again. The new trial motion was was pretty voluminous filing and included a large section that talked about the uh, Brady and Giglio violations that were alleged to have occurred um, during before and during the trial. And um, I, it seems that at the heart of this is um, a lot of information that had been previously shared with OFAC, um, and it was some of it which was shared by one of the banks involved where they had alerted OFAC to the fact of a potential uh, problematic transaction that turned out to be, it seems, again, it's hard to know on the papers, but it seems to have been just kind of a, a innocent mistake because there was a, a sort of a, it was a false hit, it looked like, from, from the records. Uh, later on, it looks like the uh, folks at DOJ took um, a more full, uh, a sort of a full accounting of the case and the transactions to OFAC um, well before the case was ever charged criminally and tried to encourage OFAC to um, pursue the case, to take some sort of action against Mr. Sauter and some of the entities involved. OFAC never took any action. And, and I will tell you, as having been in, in this position in my prior life at DOJ, that, you know, in the hierarchy, obviously, of sort of uh, proof and willfulness that we see in these cases, when you're talking about sort of the administrative level that OFAC administers and then the uh, DOJ at the criminal level, if, if at the administrative level, when you have kind of strict liability standards in place, if, if those folks are not going to be interested, don't view it as a, as, a, as a righteous case or as something they want to pursue or enforce, then that would, I know in our discussions, that would usually make us think twice about whether this is something we wanted to pursue criminally, because if they don't think that there's any there there on the administrative level, then how are we going to show behind a re, uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt that this was a willful violation of the sanctions? And so there's a, there's a lot more that's alleged in the papers. And I should also add that the court has now said to the government, you're not getting off that easy. You need to come to me. And there are 10, I believe, 10 questions that the court has furnished to the government, and they have now appointed special counsel to come in uh, in their office and do sort of a reassessment and reevaluation of what happened and to dig into the facts about why these disclosure failures occurred. And they're going to need to come forward with detailed information. And that date got pushed back. It's not now until early July that that filing is due. But that is going to be fascinating to see what, what comes out of that, because this is potentially quite embarrassing for SDNY and DOJ if there really were what seemed to be pretty um, serious and, and egregious discovery failures and Brady violations. And, and also just, again, on a sanctions point, just sort of a sanctions kind of big picture point, this idea that if OFAC was sort of aware in the first instance, and, and again, there were some other, there are some other sort of assertions that some, some of the aspects of this were looked at by counsel and, and, and those bits were never revealed. There were a lot, it seems that there were a number of different sort of exculpatory um, strands of evidence here that were just never made known to the defense team. Um, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. And, and sort of the big, so the big question is sort of what are your initial reactions to that, Tim? And then on a broader scale, if this really was, um, if, if even a fraction of what has been sort of asserted by the defense is true, 
does this have any lasting consequences for the way that these types of cases are looked at from a criminal perspective at DOJ? Because, um, you know, the, the case that the defense has pointed to in terms of the type of order that should be entered by the court is the, the case is the order from the Ted Stevens case, which if anybody understands or remembers from that case, that was a sort of, that is the sort of exhibit A in terms of Brady violations and the teaching point and the cautionary tale at DOJ um, from the prosecution of Senator Stevens, which was ultimately just dismissed um, before a final judgment was ever entered after the jury verdict. So what do we make of all this and what, what are the potential lasting consequences here? Well, I'll start from the end. This, this does remind me a lot of what happened in the Stevens case. And, you know, it's been 10, 12 years since that case happened, but, but it really is one of the few cases that I've seen where after a, a jury verdict of guilty, the government comes in and asks for the case to be dismissed. You know that that is that, that once you start digging as to what really happened, it's going to probably get really bad for the government because they generally, uh, you know, it's really the, this case, the Stevens case are, are really the two that I'm most familiar with. I'm not sure it's happened in between, in between. If it has, it hasn't happened very much, but, but not on a case and certainly not in a case of this kind of visibility. Exactly. And so, so you know that things are pretty bad. Um, and you know that from the court's order uh, that 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 you have a court that is really concerned. And and going through some of the the filings in the case, you can kind of see uh, where this arose, and it it really does look pretty bad for the government. And and I, again, it's got to be pretty bad for the government in light of both the court's order, but also the fact that the government is willing to give up the conviction. But it looks to me like in the middle of trial. Um, for the first time, the government revealed that there had been uh, a report by Commerce Bank to OFAC back in 2011. That was the first time that was ever disclosed to the defense. And why that was exculpatory was that that the OFAC had this information and decided not to do anything with it. So they they had actually learned from Commerce Bank that there was this Venezuela housing project that appeared to have been uh, some connection to Iran. And so Commerce Bank flagged it. Um, OFAC did nothing. And that's how this issue kind of arises. And, and at the time, at least according to the defense pleadings, the court commented that this has a bit of a tip of the iceberg feel to it, um, which appeared to have been quite prescient. pretty prescient of the yeah. court. And so, so then, it, then it turns out that I just that, you know, I apparently DOJ was not pleased with OFAC's uh, failure to take action. And so twice in 2016 and 2017, uh, the, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office that was handling this case went to OFAC to try and brief both uh, OFAC enforcement and then the, the head of OFAC's enforcement unit. Um, uh, they gave a PowerPoint briefing to, to talk about how strong their case was and to ask OFAC to take another look and to try and, uh, to try and move forward on some sort of OFAC enforcement action. And as you said, Brian, I mean, the fact that OFAC with its strict liability standards decided to take a pass on this is pretty interesting. Um, and so it does suggest that when you start looking more closely, that there may not have been as much there there. And it is you know, troubling that the government didn't reveal that until basically the Commerce Bank stuff started coming out and then this more stuff started started coming out in, in drips and dribbles. And then there's this recording that that they disclosed two weeks later in which they record a number of people in Venezuela talking about this transaction and actually explaining 
the same way that that uh, that Mr. Sauter had apparently explained that that they didn't believe that because the trans the, the money never went back to Iran, they didn't believe that the U.S. sanctions could apply. And apparently, the understanding was that that the OFAC sanctions in this instance really only applied to the Iranian government and certain other Iranian officials, but wouldn't apply um, wouldn't apply uh, to a, a private uh, building company. Now, it seemed to be pretty relevant to willfulness. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that, and I'm always, I'm always in, in some ways, always kind of struck by the fact that these willfulness defenses seem to fail in these cases. And so you'd think that the argument, the, the evidence is going to be pretty strong that somebody knew exactly what they were doing because the U.S. sanctions are so complicated. And what you can and can't do, the line between it is often so really blurry, or if it's, if it's, if there's a difference, it's one that, you know, only really experienced OFAC and sanctions practitioners can pick up on, that that there's enough evidence of someone knowing that they couldn't do this because of Iranian sanctions, which again are pretty complicated, and then doing it anyway and, and coming up with the scheme to do it anyway. Now, there are cases where there is that evidence out there, but I am surprised the jury seemed to reject this um, theory of lack of willfulness as often as they do. And this sort of evidence is would seems like it would have just been really compelling in terms of um, in terms of what it, how it would have changed the picture of the trial, where you have OFAC taking a pass, and then you have witnesses who apparently confirmed their misunderstanding of U.S. sanctions in the same way that the the, the defendant did. And those those recordings of those interviews. Two things about that: one is the fact that they were withheld that long is very troubling. The worst fact, and this is one that I think you know is probably beyond the purview of this of a pure sanctions podcast. But to me, the worst fact is that none of the stuff that was helpful to the defense wound up in the FBI 302s. So, so the the defense received the, the FBI notes and reports about this this uh, this interview. But in this instance, which is not very common, but because the FBI generally doesn't record interviews, there was actual recording of the interview and all of the good stuff for the defense was left out of the notes and left out of the 302s. And so even though there was disclosure of that sort of thing, the real evidence was never disclosed. And that's another thing that is clearly, I think, going to be front and center with the court when it, when it ultimately gets this information and I guess we will we will see what the government's explanation for that is but but my guess is that that one may be pushed off on the FBI agents so what so again just before we we move on so what do we think big picture here so I think we're I think we're both assuming that this is going to be a pretty heavy hammer that comes down from the court with respect to the the folks involved here on the prosecution side um, what do we just looking in the crystal ball a little bit, what do we expect? L lasting effects, brush this one off as sort of a, you know, outlier case. What do we sort of, what, what do you think on, on that front? Well, I, I think a couple of things. One is that if you're doing one of these cases on the criminal side, you ought to be looking for a couple of things based on what happened in this case. The first is, what, where are the, where is the communication between OFAC and the the prosecuting authorities, because um, you know if it's a if it's a if it's a criminal sanctions case, certainly OFAC is going to have been in the loop at some point. And if OFAC didn't take any action, you're going to want to know why that is. And it seems like here um, that 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 was something that would have been really helpful. And it seems like the defense pushed for it, but it but it I think 
going forward from this case, I, I will be very surprised if there if if another prosecution team decides that they can just kind of get away with not turning that over if it exists and it's it's helpful to the defense. I think in the same way, um, if you if you have a case that involves banking transactions, you're going to want to try and figure out what happened at the compliance level with the banks because here, at the compliance level with Commerce Bank, there was apparently a, a determination that once they actually got to the bottom of this, that this that this was not a problem. Now, again, they, they might have gotten it wrong from a U.S. sanctions perspective, although the defense the defense argument is that they were that they essentially decided that it was OK, but they had stopped the transaction to begin with from overcompliance, something that we see all the time. And so, you know, that is actually going to be really helpful, I think, for, if you're defending one of these cases to really figure out because um, you know, this is this is an issue that comes up a lot, and one is that, it, it, and it's that, if you are dealing with a bank, and you actually are correct that your transaction is lawful, but the bank is stopping it anyway, continuing to try the transaction even with a different bank is not evasion of sanctions. It's essentially just trying to get somebody to process a lawful transaction when the bank is acting unreasonably and won't do it. And I suspect that um, that that sort of discussion will be very could be very helpful to any defendant on the question of willfulness because my in in many of these cases what you'll see is kind of the primary evidence of willfulness is that the defendant was told that they couldn't do it by a bank and continued to do it anyway but the problem is is that the bank often is wrong about sanctions because they see Iran and they stop even though there are even in the humanitarian context and so there's many transactions that could be lawfully financed that aren't and so just because a bank says no um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do it. Now, you know, before anybody, before any, there's any ambiguity about this, we're not saying if a bank says no, just go ahead and try it anyway. But what we're saying is that you, you, you do have, you, there are situations where a bank is saying no, even though there isn't anything wrong with the transaction. And that was apparently pretty relevant here. And I think it's something that if you're defending one of these cases, it's going to be important to look for. And I think from the prosecution side, I, I suspect that we'll see a lot more disclosure of this information following what's the, the disaster that's happened in the Sauter case. Yeah, I think, so I'll just so I'll just end with a couple of quick comments on that, which is, you know, I do think this is a, it's sort of a unique pulling back the curtain of that interplay between these compliance considerations and how they kind of manifest and bubble up both in the banks and at the agencies. And then when, if in an, in an instance when DOJ is involved, the, the interplay there and in sort of, you know, that's not something I, I think that people are all that sort of familiar with necessarily unless they've kind of lived through one of these or have watched one of them closely. So I agree with everything Tim said that that's kind of a fascinating um, sort of side element here. And then, you know, the other question about, um, you know, how does this going forward, like I wouldn't be surprised if as a, just a matter of practice, DOJ doesn't, you know, they don't allow their, they don't allow their prosecutors to sort of make a, a full-on pitch to OFAC anymore, right? I mean, right. that's a, you know, don't put a, don't put a deck together and, and go do that because then that's Brady if they say yeah. no. I, I mean, it's, I mean, I think that probably should have been apparent to them at the time, you know, not that we want to Monday morning quarterback this too much or, or so we don't, you know, we don't know all the details. Again, we're caveating all this, presuming everybody was going about this, hopefully in good faith, but um, you know, that that would have probably been sort of something to be thinking about at the time 
So does that just mean that that stuff happens in person with no slides or it happens over the phone or it happens, you know, those types of things, right? Um, so I don't know. So I think, yeah, practices and other things behind the scenes and sort of the interplay of all of these elements that we all, that we talk about so often, it'll be interesting to see if there's any lasting impact and whether, you know, there is any um, sort of big, you know, after, again, after the Senator Stevens dismissal, there were some big changes to sort of training and other things at DOJ. And is that going to happen here? Is it going to be confined only to SDNY? Is it going to be, you know, broader than that? I, I, I don't know, but we'll, we'll keep an eye out and this is going to play out over the next, you know, month or two at least. So we'll, I'm sure we'll be back on this one uh, again in the not too distant future. Um, yeah. And with, Two no, quick, two two quick additions to that because you mentioned the good faith of the prosecutors, and I just wanted to add something right there. So, so I, I, I we'll see we'll see when the court flushes out what really happened. But I suspect that what happened is what happens often in in these Brady cases, which is because the Brady puts the prosecutors to it, what I view as an impossible burden, which is determining whether or not potentially helpful evidence is material and allowing them to withhold it on the grounds of potential non-materiality. You have a lot of things that are withheld based on that rule where I think that many prosecutors will decide in good faith, in fa good faith that evidence is not material and therefore doesn't need to be disclosed under Brady. It, but if you had showed that same evidence to a defense lawyer, they would have had the completely opposite conclusion. And, and when this stuff comes out after trial, particularly when it comes out kind of in drips and drabs and at the volume that it has here, it looks terrible, but I suspect that what what started this was this impossible burden of having a prosecutor with an adversarial hat on about their case, determining whether or not something would be so helpful to the defense that it could create a, the possibility of a different result in a, in a trial. I, I think that that is just a really hard burden to, to shoulder. But but I think the, the other thing I did want to say is that the papers here, I thought from the defense side, the, the step-toe papers that uh, Reed Weingarten, Brian Heberleg, Bruce Bishop put together were, were really quite quite compelling. And I think that that was, you know, that, that it's led to a very good result for their client. But as you said, Brian, these motions are often filed um, and I've read a lot of them. They're usually not this compelling. We've written And we've written some of them I've too. I've written a few of yeah. them too, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah, no, good points all. Uh, so again, let's let's leave that. Let's leave Mr. Sauter for now, and we'll stay tuned on that. Uh, and now, I think for our final sort of main uh, topic, let's go back. I'll throw it back to Tim for this new the new executive order uh, relating to the ICC. So let's go down to the ICC, and we can be very brief on this one. So. Uh, Back in 2017, uh, the International Criminal Court uh, started to take up an investigation of some actions that had taken place uh, in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and they were going after a, a number of countries that were member states to the ICC, but also that investigation uh, potentially touches on the United States. And there's been some discussion at the ICC as to whether or not they'd be allowed to proceed on this. And uh, currently they uh, have been, uh, at least as I understand it, given some permission to proceed by an appellate panel of the ICC. And so those that investigation appeared to be going forward now. And it's been one that the United States has been very upset about and very opposed to every step of the way. And now that it appears to be moving forward, um, President Trump, uh, again, in the last couple of weeks, has does, has entered an, uh, an executive order that has imposed sanctions uh, against anyone that is working uh, 
on this investigation for the ICC. And so basically it's blocking sanctions. And then what we see often in this area, particularly when they're sanctions targeting uh, some sort of international body or some sort of body that, that would be likely to want to visit the United States with their families, there are uh, travel sanctions that would essentially ban any of the ICC investigators and their families from uh, visiting the United States. And those, those, as I said, those sanctions are quite common. So, so kind of what, what is the, the point of this? Well, the point obviously is to express uh, displeasure from the United States with the ICC investigation to try and stop the ICC investigation uh, after the, the tri President Trump entered the executive order. Uh, there was a press conference and uh, the Secretary Pompeo uh, and the Defense Secretary and the Attorney General all talked about the, the reasons why this was important to pre preserve the sovereignty of the United States. Now, Secretary Pompeo also gave a story about how it, what it was keeping him up at night is that somebody in the future would be some low-level uh, military person in Afghanistan would be visiting Europe with his or her family and would be arrested out of the blue uh, under the, the authority of the ICC and that this uh, was what was keeping him up at night and what was motivating this, that you could be essentially arrested and uh, prosecuted by what they labeled a kangaroo court that was operating out of the Netherlands. Um, now, I think that that viewpoint might be taking things a bit far um, because as I understand it, uh, the ICC's jurisdiction is largely limited to the decision makers. It's not gonna be going after individuals, um, at, at a, at a, you know, individual soldiers for particular acts um, that, that likely could be prosecuted within either Afghanistan or within some of the other countries that were um, alleged to have been involved in this as well. Because I understand, my understanding is that some ICC members are also under investigation uh, for these same sorts of acts. Some of the, the um, European allies who may have uh, engaged in some of the conduct that's alleged in terms of detentions. And so that seemed, that hypothetical seemed to be stretching things a, a bit far and I, as did I think the characterization of the ICC as, as a as a kangaroo court, um, although they did talk about the, the lower level of due process at the ICC compared to the American system, although uh, I, I do suspect that, that that level of process uh, is, is characteristic of um, inquisitorial systems generally as opposed to our, our sort of adversarial system. So I'm not sure that the ICC is that different from, from courts around the world. But the short, the long and the short of it is that there are sanctions out there. I suspect that those sanctions will be uh, will be a program that doesn't get used very often unless the ICC decides to pursue, per, pursue forward with its investigation, uh, particularly if it uh, tries to investigate Americans out of that investigation. But uh, we shall see. And I, I also do think that that is um, likely, not this particular issue, but this sort of theme is likely to be an issue in the 2020 election. And that if, uh, if the administration changes in 2021 that this might be a sanctions program that does not survive the Trump administration. Yeah, I'll, I would go so far as to say that I wouldn't be shocked if this sanctions program never gets used. Yeah, I think ever. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the prospects that anything is on the horizon immediately here are that they're, they don't appear to be. This, this seems to, the timing of this seems odd that this is coming out now. Um, there doesn't, you know, again, perhaps they have inform the, the decision makers here have information that something is imminent and they're, they're trying to get way out ahead of it and to deter 
the ICC from taking any steps relating to U.S. personnel, U.S. or military personnel. But um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this this sits and collects dust essentially uh, indefinitely, if not, um, you know, uh, and, and perhaps maybe never gets used depending on uh, the outcome of the election here this fall. So um, the only other thing I would add, I think Tim pretty well summarized it. I don't, I don't know that there's too much more to say. The only other thing to add is that, you know, at the end of the day, my understanding is that the, what the ICC is primarily looking at is sort of war crimes perpetrated by the Taliban and the Afghan national security forces and, and, and the like. And so the, the fear here from the U.S. perspective is that with the enhanced interrogation and other sort of things that have come out over time about what was going on at Bagram Air Base uh, and perhaps other locations in Afghanistan, that that's going to put U.S. military personnel at, in harm's way. And that's the, the you know, Secretary Pompeo's nightmare that some serviceman or woman who had been at, in, in Bagram, you know, 15 years ago shows up for vacation in Europe in two or three years and then gets snatched up and uh, pursuant to some warrant issued by the ICC. So, you know, I, I, I you know, again, sort of ha the timing of this is a little odd. The likelihood that this is ever going to really come to um, a head seems, um, I don't, I don't want to handicap it, but it certainly doesn't seem like it's a, it doesn't look like it's a certainty by any stretch. So, so we'll just have to wait and see, but, but this is a new executive order that's now out and uh, we will, we'll be watching if, if we're proven wrong and somebody is thrown on the list for having conducted this investigate, these investigations in the next few months, then I'm sure we'll be back to it. But um, as things stand now, we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we're we're probably putting low low probability that we're going to see a lot of action on this executive order uh, in the near future, if ever. So, um, with that, I think that wraps up kind of the main portion of of the program. And now it's time for wait for it. Um, and so today, again on the lightning round, we um, have again our one of our favorite topics, which is uh, Venezuela and the maritime industry, um, relating to the illicit. Uh, movement of petroleum in service of the Maduro regime and PDVSA. So to make this real lightning, let me, so the, um, there was action taken just last week, middle of last week, to sanction a number of parties, including a network based in Mexico that's alleged to be now um, heavily involved in, in that uh, sort of, again, illicit movement of Petroleum, including interestingly, one of the, the statistics that was quoted in the press release is that the one of the, um, the or the companies that are involved on the Mexico um, in the Mexico network are now um, apparently, according to the release, are responsible for the movement of approximately forty percent of Petrovesa's oil export, exports as of April. So that's a that's a pretty huge chunk that that they are purportedly involved in here and so if, if um you know this presumably will put a pretty significant dent in that operation um so i guess two two questions for you tim so number one just kind of what do we make of the new designations but i think interestingly perhaps even more interestingly because the designations are sort of more of the same of what we've been seeing on venezuela for the last several months but there are a handful of, there are two entities and two vessels that were just designated a few weeks ago, which we talked about just a few weeks ago, who have already been taken off the list. And they were taken off the list, moreover, with what seems like a pretty, a pretty light 
um, uh, requirement, which is just that they've they've pledged to institute essentially a risk-based OFAC compliance program and and not do any more business with Maduro, the Maduro regime, um, going forward. That's re that's really it. That's what's that's what's um, at least in the public statement about this. So, what do we make of the new designations, and what do you make of the removals in particular, which are which sort of struck me and struck both of us, I think, as as a, a little unusual that that would be the the grounds for removal and so quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that it's unusual and I think these designations are also difficult to understand on their face in terms of what exactly got these uh, vessels designated. But I think when you kind of peel back the onion, the, the underlying theme in all of this appears to be, you know, support Maduro and do anything to help PDVSA and you get sanctioned and uh, change your ways. And it doesn't take much, but essentially, change your view with respect to Maduro and you go back on the good list because essentially U.S. policy in Venezuela now is that Maduro needs to go and anybody who's trying to help that happen is not going to get sanctioned and anybody who's, who does anything that helps Maduro stay in office, including helping them finance the, the regime and particularly finance uh, and support and, and cultivate support from the military, which is keeping Maduro in power, is going to get sanctioned immediately. And so it's really hard to, the OFAC doesn't say a lot about the designations, and it certainly doesn't say a lot about the delistings, but I think that what I can see there is, you know, help Maduro, you get sanctioned, to, you know, pledge not to help him anymore, and you'll get off the list. Yeah, I think that on the latter point, that's, again, what struck us, because it seems to us that that's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty easy pledge to make, perhaps, yeah. and 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 we're used to seeing OFAC require quite extensive kind of remediation and proof of remediation and and mitigation and change uh, behavior, et cetera, before um, you know someone's status uh, as a black person or on the SDN list will be changed, and so. I think notable, and so we'll see if we if there are more of these, perhaps that we see in the future. Uh, going forward. So I think that's all we want to say about that. But then let's pivot to um, a topic we don't get to spend too much time on, but let's go to Syria here for the next one. Let's go quickly to Syria. Um, there's the, we wanted to talk quickly about the Caesar Syria Civ Civilian Protection Act of 2019, which was part of the, the National Defense Authorization Act. We've talked about some of the other sanctions measures that were in there. I think when the defense authorization bill goes through, there's all sorts of things that get packed into it because it's a kind of a must pass bill and, and sanctions are often in there. And this was another provision. It's named after the Syrian photographer. He's, he's just known by Caesar because if, if uh, the Assad government learned his true identity, um, it's likely that his, his safety would be endangered. And so he's only known as Caesar. He's actually visited Congress and, and taken photographs documenting uh, the torture in Assad's prisons. And so Congress passed a law in his honor that is essentially some more secondary sanctions on the Assad regime. Uh, and, and so they add uh, certain types of conduct that uh, foreign persons or the, the Syrian government would engage in that would uh, that can qualify for sanctions. So facilitating the regime's acquisition of goods, services, technologies that support their military 
military activities as well as aviation, oil and gas production, um, some secondary sanctions on reconstruction activities. The, the first Caesar Act sanctions were imposed on June 17th, and we saw there that what, what those, those were imposed for was that during the, the Syrian conflict, uh, some places have been, been essentially cleared from uh, the government's opponents, and the land has been confiscated, and there is apparently near Damascus uh, currently being built a luxury resort on land that was confiscated from the opposition during the Civil War, and the, the sanctions on June 17th went after the builders of that, that uh, luxury project, is at least that's how it's described in the OFAC press release that accompanies the designations. And so essentially, um, these are these are the, the sorts of sanctions that are essentially going to be directed most likely uh, very selectively and, and likely at high profile acts from the uh, Assad regime with which uh, OFAC disagrees and with which uh, seem to violate US policy in terms of the, the treatment of the opposition by the Assad government. So it's really all there, there is on, on my end to say about that. Any thoughts on the Caesar Act sanctions, Brian? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you said this already, but this is the first implementation or the first enforcement under the act that's only, it was only passed, you know, at the end of last year. So six plus months, and this is the first we're seeing um, any designations under the act. Um, the, the question that sort of immediately sprang to mind for me was whether or not this represents some kind of renewed focus, enforcement focus on Syria or on these types of actors in connection with Syria and the Assad regime. Uh, I, again, I think this is, you hear us say this a lot, but I think time will tell. I, I don't know if this is just kind of an outlier uh, event where there were a number of these folks that are involved in this project and some some other related activities that uh, it was kind of a convenient time to, to sanction them now or or whether we're going to see maybe a steady drumbeat on on this front, it's uh, it's a little hard to say. This hasn't been an area of a lot of action. Syria has not been an area of a lot of action uh, in recent years under this administration, quite frankly, on the sanctions front. So, other than the minor blip that we had with respect to uh, Turkey and Syria, sort yep. of uh, uh, you know a little while back, but other than that, not not so much, not a not a big focus. So, I would probably say. I don't. I don't necessarily say this signals a trend. I think it's just maybe an overdue um, kind of first deployment of this new sanctions tool. But but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, not much more to say on Syria, but that no. was lightning. <laughs> and then on to a uh, final topic, which will be even more lightning. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, this was episode eight, I believe. We we talked briefly about a an extradition of uh, Mr. Uh, Syed Shahidian from London. He, he was held in the UK and was extradited to uh, District of Minnesota uh, on um, a number of charges relating to uh, a business that he was running in Iran, whose sole purpose, uh, as we discussed at the time, was essentially to help Iranian citizens evade US sanctions and get access to US uh, goods and US uh, financial services. And so, uh, news came out just uh, last week that um, he has already pled guilty uh, in that case. So that's a that's a pretty quick resolution and may, in fact, I'm guessing, have already been uh, in the works well before his extradition. Uh, and, and so noteworthy, I think, just because I think we'll, if you want to go back and check the audio on this, I think this was my... This was my prognostication. This was probably ripe for a quick resolution because the, the complaint 
uh, or the indictment rather read pretty, uh, like a pretty straightforward um, and pretty heavily documentary supported uh, evidentiary case. So not that surprising to see this is how this played out. I would also note that he, as it's reported in the press release, uh, Mr. Shahidian pled guilty just to the, the general conspiracy count. That was it. Um, that is a count that only carries with it a five-year maximum sentence. And he was facing otherwise some, some much stiffer penalties for some of the other charges. So again, not that surprising that this would be a uh, viewed as a positive resolution from his perspective. I'm sure his ultimate sentence here will probably be far below the maximum. Uh, and at the same time, the government has successfully extradited and gotten a conviction uh, in, in the case uh, of this, uh, again, sort of a company that was set up explicitly to evade U.S. sanctions. So that's really all I have to say about that. And then throw it to Tim yeah, for any final thoughts. Yeah, very quick. I mean, good call, Brian. I guess that's the first thing that I would say. And then the other one is it, it does strike me as after we spoke about the Sodder case today and the, the complicated issues of intent that arise when you have kind of a non-U.S. nexus transaction where the only connection to the U.S. is really the finance system. I mean, here, you know, Again, it was only a charging document. But if yeah. if you're out, if you're in Iran, and you are advertising a finance circus service that is quote designed to circumvent U.S. sanctions, and you're telling people how to set up accounts and do other things to get around U.S. sanctions, that does seem to be at the kind of the the high level in terms of a willfulness case that you're likely to see. And so it, does, it is, I think your, your call was a very good one that that was a case that was not likely to be um, fought as vigorously because there's really hard to think of what it is that you would do if that's the sort of evidence that the government had. Yeah, this didn't really seem to fall in the gray area uh, in terms of the evidence that was attached to, that was included in the indictment. So that may very well have been the case uh, ultimately. So uh, of course, many pe people plead guilty for various reasons, regardless of sort of strength of evidence, but here it certainly looked like that was that was the case. So, uh, and with that, I think that wraps us up for this week. That concludes the lightning round. That concludes our, uh, that concludes our 10th episode, our, our, our mini uh, milestone episode. Uh, so before we wrap, um, Again, sort of thank you to everybody for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Hope everybody is, um, again, staying safe, staying sane. Uh, Tim, any final thoughts before we before we go? Until next time. Happy 10th, Brian. Thank you for yes, hosting. Exactly. And again, happy Juneteenth in reverse and happy 4th of July. And looking forward uh, and uh, to everybody, stay safe and stay sanctions-free. And we will see everyone next time. Stay sanctions-free, everyone. All right. Thanks. Bye. Mm -hmm.